0: Chapter Two of The Woman in White by Wilkie Collins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tony Addison. Five. She has escaped from my asylum. I cannot say with truth that the terrible inference which those words suggested flashed upon me like a new revelation some of the strange questions put to me by the woman in white after my ill-considered promise to leave her free to act as she pleased had suggested the conclusion either that she was naturally flighty and unsettled or that some recent shock of terror had disturbed the balance of her faculties but the idea of absolute insanity which we all associate with the very name of an asylum had i can honestly declare never occurred to me in connection with her i had seen nothing in her language or her actions to justify it at the time and even with the new light thrown on her by the words which the stranger had addressed to the policeman I could see nothing to justify it now. What had I done? Assisted the victim of the most horrible of all false imprisonments to escape, or cast loose on the wide world of London an unfortunate creature, whose actions it was my duty and every man's duty mercifully to control? I turned sick at heart when the question occurred to me, and when I felt, self-reproachfully, that it was asked too late. In the disturbed state of my mind, it was useless to think of going to bed when I at last got back to my chambers in Clements Inn. Before many hours elapsed it would be necessary to start on my journey to Cumberland. I sat down and tried— first to sketch, then to read. But the woman in white got between me and my pencil, between me and my book. Had the forlorn creature come to any harm? That was my first thought, though I shrank selfishly from confronting it. Other thoughts followed, on which it was less harrowing to dwell. Where had she stopped the cab? What had become of her now, had she been traced and captured by the men in the chaise, or was she still capable of controlling her own actions, and were we two following our widely parted roads towards one point in the mysterious future at which we were to meet once more? It was a relief when the hour came to lock my door to bid farewell to London pursuits, London pupils, and London friends, and to be in movement again, towards new interests, and a new life. Even the bustle and confusion at the railway terminus, so wearisome and bewildering at other times, roused me and did me good. My travelling instructions directed me to go to Carlisle and then to diverge by a branch railway which ran in the direction of the coast as a misfortune to begin with our engine broke down between Lancaster and Carlisle the delay occasioned by this accident caused me to be too late for the branch train by which I was to have gone on immediately I HAD TO WAIT SOME HOURS, AND WHEN A LATER TRAIN FINALLY DEPOSITED ME AT THE NEAREST STATION TO Limeridge HOUSE, IT WAS PAST TEN, AND THE NIGHT WAS SO DARK THAT I COULD HARDLY SEE MY WAY TO THE PONY chaise, WHICH MR. FAIRLEY HAD ORDERED TO BE IN WAITING FOR ME. THE DRIVER WAS EVIDENTLY DISCOMPOSED BY THE LATENESS OF MY ARRIVAL. He was in that state of highly respectful sulkiness which is peculiar to English servants. We drove away slowly through the darkness in perfect silence. The roads were bad, and the dense obscurity of the night increased the difficulty of getting over the ground quickly. It was, by my watch, nearly an hour and a half from the time of our leaving the station before I heard the sound of the sea in the distance and the crunch of our wheels on a smooth gravel drive. We had passed one gate before entering the drive and we passed another before we drew up at the house. I was received by a solemn man-servant out of livery was informed that the family had retired for the night, and was then led into a large and lofty room, where my supper was awaiting me, in a forlorn manner, at one extremity of a lonesome mahogany wilderness of dining-table. I was too tired and out of spirits to eat or drink much, especially with the solemn servant waiting on me as elaborately as if a small dinner-party had arrived at the house, instead of a solitary man. In a quarter of an hour I was ready to be taken up to my bed-chamber. The solemn servant conducted me into a prettily furnished room, said, Breakfast at nine o'clock, sir. Looked all round him, to see that everything was in its proper place and noiselessly withdrew. "'What shall I see in my dreams to-night?' I thought to myself, as I put out the candle. "'The woman in white, or the unknown inhabitants of this Cumberland mansion? "'It was a strange sensation to be sleeping in the house like a friend of the family, "'and yet not to know one of the inmates, even by sight.' 6. When I rose the next morning, and drew up my blind, the sea opened before me joyously under the broad August sunlight, and the distant coast of Scotland fringed the horizon with its lines of melting blue. The view was such a surprise, and such a change to me, after my weary London experience of brick and mortar landscape. But I seemed to burst into a new life, and a new set of thoughts, the moment I looked at it. A confused sensation of having suddenly lost my familiarity with the past, without acquiring any additional clearness of idea in reference to the present or the future, took possession of my mind. Circumstances that were but a few days old faded back in my memory, as if they had happened months and months since. Pesca's quaint announcement of the means by which he had procured me my present employment, the farewell evening I had passed with my mother and sister, even my mysterious adventure on the way home from Hampstead, had all become like events which might have occurred at some former epoch of my existence. Although the woman in white, was still in my mind. "'The image of her seemed to have grown dull and faint already. "'A little before nine o'clock "'I descended to the ground floor of the house. "'The solemn manservant of the night before "'met me wandering among the passages "'and compassionately showed me the way to the breakfast-room. "'My first glance round me as the man opened the door, disclosed a well-furnished breakfast-table, standing in the middle of a long room with many windows in it. I looked from the table to the window farthest from me, and saw a lady standing at it, with her back turned towards me. The instant my eyes rested on her, I was struck by the rare beauty of her form and by the unaffected grace of her attitude. Her figure was tall, yet not too tall, comely and well-developed, yet not fat. Her head set on her shoulders with an easy, pliant firmness. Her waist, perfection in the eyes of a man, for it occupied its natural place, it filled out its natural circle it was visibly and delightfully undeformed by stays she had not heard my entrance into the room and i allowed myself the luxury of admiring her for a few moments before i moved one of the chairs near me as the least embarrassing means of attracting her attention she turned towards me immediately the easy elegance of every movement of her limbs and body, as soon as she began to advance from the far end of the room, set me in a flutter of expectation to see her face clearly. She left the window, and I said to myself, The lady is dark. She moved forward a few steps, and I said to myself, The lady is young. She approached nearer, and I said to myself, with a sense of surprise, which words fail me to express, the lady is ugly. Never was the old conventional maxim, that nature cannot err, more flatly contradicted. Never was the fair promise of a lovely figure, more strangely and startlingly belied by the face and head that crowned it. The lady's complexion was almost swarthy, and the dark down on her upper lip was almost a moustache. She had a large, firm, masculine mouth and jaw, prominent, piercing, resolute brown eyes, and thick, coal black hair, growing unusually low down on her forehead. Her expression, bright, frank, and intelligent, appeared while she was silent to be altogether wanting, in those feminine attractions of gentleness and pliability, without which the beauty of the handsomest woman alive is beauty incomplete. To see such a face as this, set on shoulders that a sculptor would have longed to model, to be charmed by the modest graces of action through which the symmetrical limbs betrayed their beauty when they moved, and then to be almost repelled by the masculine form and masculine look of the features in which the perfectly shaped figure ended, was to feel a sensation oddly akin to the helpless discomfort familiar to us all in sleep, when we recognise, yet cannot reconcile, the anomalies and contradictions of a dream." "'Mr. Hartwright?' said the lady interrogatively, her dark face lighting up with a smile, and softening and growing womanly the moment she began to speak. "'We resigned all hope of you last night, and went to bed as usual. Accept my apologies for our apparent want of attention, and allow me to introduce myself as one of your pupils. Shall we shake hands?' I suppose we must come to it sooner or later, and why not sooner?' These odd words of welcome were spoken in a clear, ringing, pleasant voice. The offered hand, rather large but beautifully formed, was given to me with the easy, unaffected self-reliance of a highly-bred woman. We sat down together at the breakfast-table, in as cordial and customary a manner as if we had known each other for years, and had met at Limeridge House, to talk over old times by previous appointment. "'I hope you come here good-humouredly determined to make the best of your position,' continued the lady. "'You will have to begin this morning by putting up with no other company at breakfast than mine. My sister is in her own room, nursing that essentially feminine malady, a slight headache and her old governess, Mrs. Vesey, is charitably attending on her, with restorative tea. My uncle, Mr. Fairley, never joins us at any of our meals. He is an invalid, and keeps bachelor state in his own apartments. There is nobody else in the house but me. Two young ladies have been staying here. But they went away yesterday in despair, and no wonder. All through their visit, in consequence of Mr. Fairley's invalid condition, we produced no such convenience in the house as a flirtable, danceable, small talkable creature of the male sex. And the consequence was, we did nothing but quarrel, especially at dinner-time, how can you expect four women to dine together alone every day and not quarrel? We are such fools. We can't entertain each other at table. You see, I don't think much of my own sex, Mr. Hartwright. Oh, which will you have, tea or coffee? No woman does think much of her own sex, although few of them confess it as freely as I do. Dear me, you look puzzled. Why— are you wondering what you will have for breakfast, or are you surprised at my careless way of talking? In the first case, I advise you as a friend to have nothing to do with that cold ham at your elbow, and to wait till the omelette comes in. In the second case, I will give you some tea to compose your spirits, and do all a woman can, which is very little by the by, to hold my tongue. She handed me my cup of tea, laughing gaily. Her light flow of talk, and her lively familiarity of manner with a total stranger, were accompanied by an unaffected naturalness, and an easy inborn confidence in herself and her position, which would have secured her the respect of the most audacious man breathing. While it was impossible to be formal and reserved in her company, it was more than impossible to take the faintest vestige of a liberty with her, even in thought. I felt this instinctively, even while I caught the infection of her own bright gaiety of spirits, even while I did my best to answer her, in her own frank, lively way. "'Yes, yes,' she said when I had suggested the only explanation I could offer to account for my perplexed looks. I understand. You are such a perfect stranger in the house, that you are puzzled by my familiar references to the worthy inhabitants. Natural enough. I ought to have thought of it before. At any rate, I can set it right now. I suppose I begin with myself, so as to get done with that part of the subject as soon as possible.' My name is Marion Halcombe, and I am as inaccurate as women usually are in calling Mr. Fairley my uncle, and Miss Fairley my sister. My mother was twice married, the first time to Mr. Halcombe, my father, the second time to Mr. Fairley, my half-sister's father, except that we are both orphans, WE ARE IN EVERY RESPECT AS UNLIKE EACH OTHER AS POSSIBLE. MY FATHER WAS A POOR MAN, AND MISS Fairlie's FATHER WAS A RICH MAN. I HAVE GOT NOTHING, AND SHE HAS A FORTUNE. I AM DARK AND UGLY, AND SHE IS FAIR AND PRETTY. EVERYBODY THINKS ME CRABBED AND ODD, WITH PERFECT JUSTICE, AND EVERYBODY THINKS HER SWEET-TEMPERED AND CHARMING with more justice still. In short, she is an angel, and I am— <laughs> Try some of that marmalade, Mr. Hartwright, and finish the sentence in the name of female propriety for yourself. What am I to tell you about Mr. Fairley? Upon my honour, I hardly know. He is sure to send for you after breakfast, and you can study him for yourself, in the meantime, I may inform you first that he is the late Mr. Fairley's younger brother, secondly that he is a single man, and thirdly that he is Miss Fairley's guardian. I won't live without her, and she can't live without me, and that is how I come to be at Limeridge House. My sister and I are honestly fond of each other, which you will say— is perfectly unaccountable under the circumstances, and I quite agree with you, but so it is. You must please both of us, Mr. Hartwright, or please neither of us, and what is still more trying, you will be thrown entirely upon our society. Mrs. Basie is an excellent person, who possesses all the cardinal virtues, and counts for nothing and Mr. Fairley is too great an invalid to be a companion for anybody. I don't know what is the matter with him, and the doctors don't know what is the matter with him, and he doesn't know himself what is the matter with him. We all say it's on the nerves, and we none of us know what we mean when we say it. However, I advise you to humour his little peculiarities when you see him to-day. Admire his collection of coins, prints, and water-colour drawings, and you will win his heart. Upon my word, if you can be contented with a quiet country life, I don't see why you should not get on very well here. From breakfast to lunch, Mr. Fairley's drawings will occupy you. After lunch, Miss Fairley and I shoulder our sketch-books, and go out to misrepresent nature." under your directions. Drawing is her favourite, mine, not mine. Women can't draw. Their minds are too flighty, and their eyes are too inattentive. No matter, and my sister likes it, so I waste paint and spoil paper for her sake, as composedly as any woman in England. As for the evenings, I think we can help you through them.' miss fairly plays delightfully for my own poor part i don't know one note of music from the other but i can match you at chess backgammon a cart, and with the inevitable female drawbacks even at billiards as well what do you think of the programme can you reconcile yourself to our quiet regular life or do you mean to be restless and secretly thirst for change and adventure in the humdrum atmosphere of Limeridge House. She had run on thus far, in her gracefully bantering way, with no other interruptions on my part than the unimportant replies which politeness required of me. The turn of the expression, however, in her last question, or rather the one chance word adventure, Lightly as it fell from her lips, recalled my thoughts to my meeting with the woman in white, and urged me to discover the connection which the stranger's own reference to Mrs. Fairley informed me must once have existed between the nameless fugitive from the asylum and the former mistress of Limeridge House. Even if I were the most restless of mankind, I said, I should be in no danger of thirsting after adventures for some time to come. The very night before I arrived at this house, I met with an adventure, and the wonder and excitement of it, I can assure you, Miss Halcombe, will last me for the whole term of my stay in Cumberland, if not for a much longer period. You don't say so, Mr. Hartwright. May I hear it? you have a claim to hear it. The chief person in the adventure was a total stranger to me, and may perhaps be a total stranger to you, but she certainly mentioned the name of the late Mrs. Fairley in terms of the sincerest gratitude and regard. Mentioned my mother's name. You interest me indescribably. Pray go on. I at once related the circumstances under which I had met the woman in white, exactly as they had occurred, and I repeated what she had said to me about Mrs. Fairley and Limeridge House, word for word. Miss Halcombe's bright, resolute eyes looked eagerly into mine, from the beginning of the narrative to the end. Her face expressed vivid interest and astonishment, but nothing more, she was evidently as far from knowing of any clue to the mystery as I was myself. "'Are you quite sure of those words referring to my mother?' she asked. "'Quite sure,' I replied. Whoever she may be, the woman was once at school in the village of Limeridge, and was treated with especial kindness by Mrs. Fairley, and, in grateful remembrance of that kindness, "'feels an affectionate interest in all surviving members of the family. "'She knew that Mrs. Fairley and her husband were both dead, "'and she spoke of Miss Fairley as if they had known each other when they were children. "'You said, I think, that she denied belonging to this place. "'Yes, she told me she came from Hampshire, "'and you entirely failed to find out her name. "'Entirely. Very strange.' I think you are quite justified, Mr. Hartwright, in giving the poor creature her liberty, for she seems to have done nothing in your presence to show herself unfit to enjoy it. But I wish you had been a little more resolute about finding out her name. We must really clear up this mystery in some way. You had better not speak of it yet to Mr. Ferry, or to my sister. They are both of them, I am certain, quite as ignorant of who the woman is and of what her past history in connection with us can be, as I am myself, but they are also in widely different ways, rather nervous and sensitive, and you would only fidget one and alarm the other to no purpose. As for myself, I am all aflame with curiosity, and I devote my whole energies to the business of discovery from this moment. When my mother came here, after her second marriage. She certainly established the village school, just as it exists at the present time. But the old teachers are all dead or gone elsewhere, and no enlightenment is to be hoped for from that quarter, the only other alternative I can think of. At this point we were interrupted by the entrance of the servant, with a message from Mr. Fairley, intimating— that he would be glad to see me, as soon as I had done breakfast. "'Wait in the hall,' said Miss Halcombe, answering the servant for me, in her quick-ready way. "'Mr. Hartwright will come out directly.' "'I was about to say,' she went on, addressing me again, "'that my sister and I have a large collection of my mother's letters, addressed to my father and to hers.' in the absence of any other means of getting information, I will pass the morning in looking over my mother's correspondence with Mr. Fairley. He was fond of London, and was constantly away from his country home, and she was accustomed at such times to write and report to him how things went on at Limeridge. Her letters are full of references to the school in which she took so strong an interest, "'and I think it more than likely "'that I may have discovered something when we meet again. "'The luncheon hour is two, Mr. Hartwright. "'I shall have the pleasure of introducing you to my sister by that time, "'and we will occupy the afternoon in driving round the neighbourhood "'and showing you all our pet points of view. "'Till two o'clock then, farewell.' "'She nodded to me with the lively grace.' The delightful refinement of familiarity, which characterised all that she did and all that she said, and disappeared by a door at the lower end of the room. As soon as she had left me, I turned my steps towards the hall, and followed the servant, on my way, for the first time, to the presence of Mr. Fairley. Seven. My conductor led me upstairs, into a passage which took us back to the bed-chamber in which I had slept during the past night, and, opening the door next to it, begged me to look in. "'I have my master's orders to show you your own sitting-room, sir,' said the man, and to inquire if you approve of the situation and the light. I must have been hard to please indeed, if I had not approved of the room and of everything about it. The bow-window looked out on the same lovely view which I had admired in the morning from my bedroom. The furniture was the perfection of luxury and beauty. The table in the centre was bright with gaily bound books, elegant conveniences for writing, and beautiful flowers. The second table near the window was covered with all the necessary materials for mounting water-colour drawings, and had a little easel attached to it, which I could expand or fold up at will. The walls were hung with gaily tinted chintz, and the floor was spread with Indian matting in maize colour and red. It was the prettiest and most luxurious little sitting-room I had ever seen, and i admired it with the warmest enthusiasm the solemn servant was far too highly trained to betray the slightest satisfaction he bowed with icy deference when my terms of eulogy were all exhausted and silently opened the door for me to go out into the passage again we turned a corner and entered a long second passage, ascended a short flight of stairs at the end, crossed a small circular upper hall, and stopped in front of a door covered with dark bays. The servant opened this door, and led me on a few yards to a second. Opened that also. disclosed two curtains of pale sea-green silk hanging before us, raised one of them noiselessly, softly uttered the words, Mr. Hartwright, and left me. I found myself in a large lofty room, with a magnificent carved ceiling, and with a carpet over the floor, so thick and soft that it felt like piles of velvet under my feet. One side of the room was occupied by a long bookcase of some rare inlaid wood that was quite new to me. It was not more than six feet high, and the top was adorned with statuettes in marble, ranged at regular distances one from the other. On the opposite side stood two antique cabinets and between them and above them hung a picture of the virgin and child protected by glass and bearing raphael's name on the gilt tablet at the bottom of the frame on my right hand and on my left as i stood inside the door were chiffoniers and little stands in boule and marqueterie loaded with figures in Dresden, China, with rare vases, ivory ornaments, and toys and curiosities that sparkled at all points with gold, silver, and precious stones. At the lower end of the room, opposite to me, the windows were concealed, and the sunlight was tempered by large blinds, of the same pale sea-green colour as the curtains over the door the light thus produced was deliciously soft mysterious and subdued it fell equally upon all the objects in the room it helped to intensify the deep silence and the air of profound seclusion that possessed the place and it surrounded with an appropriate halo of repose the solitary figure of the master of the house leaning back listlessly composed in a large easy-chair with a reading easel fastened on one of its arms and a little table on the other if a man's personal appearance when he is out of his dressing-room and when he has passed forty, can be accepted as a safe guide to his time of life which is more than doubtful. Mr. Fairley's age, when I saw him, might have been reasonably computed at over fifty and under sixty years. His beardless face was thin, warm, and transparently pale, but not wrinkled. His nose was high and hooked. His eyes were of a dim grayish blue, large, prominent, and rather red round the rims of the eyelids. His hair was scanty, soft to look at, and of that light sandy color which is the last to disclose its own changes towards gray. He was dressed in a dark frock-coat of some substance much thinner than cloth, and in waistcoat and trousers of spotless white. His feet were effeminately small, and were clad in buff-coloured silk stockings and little womanish bronze-leather slippers. Two rings adorned his white delicate hands, the value of which even my inexperienced observation detected to be all but priceless upon the whole, he had a frail languidly fretful over-refined look something singularly and unpleasantly delicate in its association with a man and at the same time something which could by no possibility have looked natural and appropriate "'if it had been transferred to the personal appearance of a woman. "'My morning's experience of Miss Halcombe "'had predisposed me to be pleased with everybody in the house. "'But my sympathies shut themselves up resolutely "'at the first sight of Mr. Fairley. "'On approaching nearer to him, I discovered that he was not so entirely without occupation as I had at first supposed. But placed amid the other rare and beautiful objects on a large round table near him was a dwarf cabinet in ebony and silver, containing coins of all shapes and sizes, set out in little drawers lined with dark purple velvet one of these drawers lay on the small table attached to his chair and near it were some tiny jeweller's brushes a wash leather stump and a little bottle of liquid all waiting to be used in various ways for the removal of any accidental impurities which might be discovered on the coins his frail white fingers were listlessly toying with something which looked to my uninstructed eyes like a dirty pewter medal with ragged edges when i advanced within a respectful distance of his chair and stopped to make my bow so glad to possess you at Limeridge, mr Hartwright," he said in a querulous croaking voice which combined in anything but an agreeable manner a discordantly high tone with a drowsily languid utterance pray sit down and don't trouble yourself to move the chair please in the wretched state of my nerves movement of any kind is exquisitely painful to me have you seen your studio will it do i have just come from seeing the room mr fairlie and i assure you he stopped me in the middle of the sentence by closing his eyes and holding up one of his white hands imploringly i paused in astonishment and the croaking voice honoured me with this explanation pray excuse me but could you contrive to speak in a lower key in the wretched state of my nerves? Loud sound of any kind is indescribable torture to me. You will pardon an invalid. I only say to you, what the lamentable state of my health obliges me to say to everybody yes and you really like the room i could wish for nothing prettier and nothing more comfortable i answered dropping my voice and beginning to discover already that mr fairlie's selfish affectation and mr fairlie's wretched nerves meant one and the same thing so glad you will find your position here mr hartright properly recognised there is none of the horrid english barbarity of feeling about the social position of an artist in this house so much of my early life has been passed abroad "'that I have quite cast my insular skin in that respect. "'I wish I could say the same of the gentry, detestable word, "'but I suppose I must use it. "'Of the gentry in the neighbourhood. "'They are sad goths in art, Mr. Hartwright. "'People, I do assure you, who "'would have opened their eyes in astonishment if they had seen Charles V pick up Titian's brush for him. Do you mind putting this tray of coins back in the cabinet, and giving me the next one to it? In the wretched state of my nerve, exertion of any kind is unspeakably disagreeable to me. Yes. Thank you." As a practical commentary. On the liberal social theory, which he had just favoured me by illustrating, Mr. Fairley's cool request rather amused me. I put back one drawer, and gave him the other, with all possible politeness. He began trifling with the new set of coins, and the little brushes immediately, languidly looking at them, and admiring them all the time he was speaking to me. "'A thousand thanks, and a thousand excuses. "'Do you like coins?' "'Yes. "'So glad we have another taste in common besides our taste for art. "'Now, about the pecuniary arrangements between us, do tell me, are they satisfactory?' "'Most satisfactory, Mr. Fairley. "'So glad.' and what next ah, i remember yes in reference to the consideration which you are good enough to accept for giving me the benefit of your accomplishments in art my steward will wait on you at the end of the first week to ascertain your wishes and oh, what next curious is it not i had a great deal more to say and i appear to have quite forgotten it do you mind touching the bell in that corner yes thank you i rang and a new servant noiselessly made his appearance a foreigner with a set smile and perfectly brushed hair a valet every inch of him Louis, said mr fairlie dreamily brushing the tips of his fingers with one of the tiny brushes for the coins i made some entries in my tablets this morning find my tablets a thousand pardons mr hartright i'm afraid i bore you as he wearily closed his eyes again before I could answer, and as he did most assuredly bore me, I sat silent and looked up at the Madonna and Child by Raphael. In the meantime, the valet left the room and returned shortly with a little ivory book. Mr. Fairley, after first relieving himself by a gentle sigh, let the book drop open with one hand, and held up the tiny brush with the other, as a sign to the servant to wait for further orders. "'Yes, just so,' said Mr. Fairley, consulting the tablets. "'Louis, take down that portfolio,' he pointed as he spoke. To several portfolios placed near the window on mahogany stands. No, not the one with the green back that contains my Rembrandt etchings, Mr. Hartwright. Do you like etchings? Yes. So glad we have another taste in common. The portfolio with the red back, Louis. Don't drop it you have no idea of the tortures i should suffer mr hartright if Louis dropped that portfolio is it safe on the chair do you think it's safe mr hartright yes so glad will you oblige me by looking at the drawing if you really think they are quite safe Louis, go away what an ass you are don't you see me holding the tablet do you suppose I want to hold them then why not relieve me of the tablets without being told a thousand pardons mr hartright servants are such asses are they not do tell me what do you think of the drawings they have come from a sale in a shocking state I thought they smelt of horrid dealers' and brokers' fingers when I looked at them last. Can you undertake them? Although my nerves were not delicate enough to detect the odour of plebeian fingers, which had offended Mr. Fairley's nostrils, my taste was sufficiently educated to enable me to appreciate the value of the drawings while I turned them over, they were for the most part really fine specimens of english water-colour art and they had deserved much better treatment at the hands of their former possessor than they appeared to have received the drawings i answered require careful straining and mounting and in my opinion they are well worth i beg your pardon interposed mr Fairley do you mind my closing my eyes while you speak even this light is too much for them yes i was about to say that the drawings are well worth all the time and trouble mr fairlie suddenly opened his eyes again and rolled them with an expression of helpless alarm in the direction of the window "'I entreat you to excuse me, Mr. Hartwright,' he said in a feeble flutter. "'But surely I hear some horrid children in the garden, my private garden below.' "'I can't say, Mr. Fairley. I heard nothing myself. Oblige me. You have been so very good in humouring my poor nerves. Oblige me by lifting up a corner of the blind. "'Don't let the sun in on me, Mr. Hartwright. "'Have you got the blind up? Yes.' THEN WILL YOU BE SO VERY KIND AS TO LOOK INTO THE GARDEN AND MAKE QUITE SURE. I COMPLIED WITH THIS NEW REQUEST. THE GARDEN WAS CAREFULLY WALLED IN ALL ROUND. NOT A HUMAN CREATURE, LARGE OR SMALL, APPEARED IN ANY PART OF THE SACRED SECLUSION. I REPORTED THAT GRATIFYING FACT TO MR. FAIRLEY. A THOUSAND THANKS, MY FANCY, I SUPPOSE. There are no children, thank heaven, in the house, but the servants, persons born without nerve, will encourage the children from the village. Such brats, oh dear me, such brads, shall I confess it, Mr. Hartwright. I sadly want to reform in the construction of children. Nature's only idea seems to be to make them machines for the production of incessant noise surely our delightful raffaello's conception is infinitely preferable he pointed to the picture of the madonna the upper part of which represented the conventional cherubs of italian art celestially provided with sitting accommodation for their chins on balloons of buff-coloured cloud quite a model family said mr fairlie leering at the cherub such nice round faces and such nice soft wings and nothing else no dirty little legs to run about on no noisy little lungs to scream with "'How immeasurably superior to the existing construction! "'I will close my eyes again, if you will allow me. "'And you really can manage the drawing, so glad. "'Is there anything else to settle? "'If there is, I think I have forgotten it. "'Shall we ring for Louis again?' "'Being, by this time, quite as anxious on my side, "'as Mr. Fairley evidently was on his,' to bring the interview to a speedy conclusion, I thought I would try to render the summoning of the servant unnecessary, by offering the requisite suggestion on my own responsibility. The only point, Mr. Fairley, that remains to be discussed, I said, refers, I think, to the instruction in sketching which I am engaged to communicate to the two young ladies. Ah, just so said mr Fairley, i wish i felt strong enough to go into that part of the arrangement but i don't the ladies who profit by your kind services mr hartright must settle and decide and so on for themselves my niece is fond of your charming art she knows just enough about it to be conscious of her own sad defects. Please take pains with her. Yes, is there anything else? No, we quite understand each other, don't we? I have no right to detain you any longer from your delightful pursuit, have I? So pleasant to have settled everything. Such a sensible relief. "'to have done business. "'Do you mind ringing for Louis "'to carry the portfolio to your own room? "'I will carry it there myself, Mr. Fairley, "'if you will allow me. "'Will you really? "'Are you strong enough? "'How nice to be so strong. "'Are you sure you won't drop it? "'So glad to possess you at Limeridge, Mr. Hartwright. I am such a sufferer that I hardly dare hope to enjoy much of your society. Would you mind taking great pains not to let the doors bang and not to drop the portfolio? Thank you. Gently with the curtains, please. The slightest noise from them goes through me like a knife. Yes good morning when the sea-green curtains were closed and when the two baize doors were shut behind me i stopped for a moment in the little circular hall beyond and drew a long luxurious breath of relief it was like coming to the surface of the water after deep diving to find myself once more on the outside of Mr. Fairley's room. As soon as I was comfortably established for the morning, in my pretty little studio, the first resolution at which I arrived was to turn my steps no more in the direction of the apartments occupied by the master of the house, except in the very improbable event of his honouring me with a special invitation to pay him another visit. Having settled this satisfactory plan of future conduct in reference to Mr. Fairley, I soon recovered the serenity of temper of which my employer's haughty familiarity and impudent politeness had for the moment deprived me. The remaining hours of the morning passed away pleasantly enough in looking over the drawings, arranging them in set, trimming their ragged edges, and accomplishing the other necessary preparations in anticipation of the business of mounting them. I ought perhaps to have made more progress than this, but as the luncheon-time drew near, I grew restless and unsettled, and felt unable to fix my attention on work, even though that work was only of the humble manual kind." At two o'clock I descended again to the breakfast-room a little anxiously. Expectations of some interest were connected with my approaching reappearance in that part of the house. My introduction to Miss Fairley was now close at hand, and if Miss Halcombe's search through her mother's letters had produced the result which she anticipated, the time had come for clearing up the mystery of the woman in white End of chapter 2